Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Dr. John Shears, a polar geographer and expedition leader with over 30 years experience of working in the polar regions. John has worked at the British Antarctic Survey and the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, and since 2017 has run his own polar consultancy business, Shears Polar Limited. In 2019, John led the International Weddell Sea Expedition to Antarctica using the South African icebreaker SA Aguilas II. He is a long-standing fellow of the Royal Geographical Society and a chartered geographer. Thank you for joining us today, John. Could I ask you to give us a little background on your work and the Weddell Sea Expedition of 2019? Hello, Harry. It's a delight to uh, join you and the Royal Geographical Society today for this uh, podcast. Um, Yeah, what I do is I run expeditions to the polar regions, uh, provide advice on various polar projects, and I also work as a lecturer and guide on polar tour ships. Uh, I was very lucky to be the expedition leader for the Weddell Sea Expedition in 2019 and I ran all the complex logistics and operations to get the expedition safely to Antarctica and back and uh, earlier this year uh, I went on a separate expedition where I was a guest lecturer on a cruise ship sailing to the Ross Sea in Antarctica and was lucky enough to get to Captain Scott's hut in the on Ross Island so yeah it's a, an unusual job but one I absolutely love. Brilliant. Can I ask, how often do you go, John? Uh, normally, it's about once once every couple of years, something like that. I think I've now probably been to Antarctica and the Arctic over 25 times in my career. Amazing. What uh, was it like receiving the Polar Medal from Prince William at Buckingham Palace last year? Uh, it was Incredible. It was amazing. The Polar Medal is awarded by the Queen for uh, outstanding achievement and service in the polar regions. And in um, in my case, it was for my work in Antarctica. The medal was originally instituted by King Edward VII in 1904 to celebrate Captain Scott and his first expedition, the Discovery Expedition to Antarctica. Um, only about four or five people are awarded the medal uh, each year, and past recipients have included uh, Captain Scott, Sir Ernest Shackleton, Sir Vivian Fuchs, and more recently Sir Ronald Fiennes. So it was an incredible privilege and honour uh, to be able to go to Buckingham Palace with my family and to be presented with the the, the, the medal by by Prince William. Uh, it was an absolutely fantastic day, one I'll I'll always remember. How did you start working for the British Antarctic Survey, and how did you end up running your own? polar consultancy business that took you all the way to to Buckingham Palace? Well, sometimes I I think perhaps I was just very lucky, but then sometimes I think perhaps you make your own luck. Uh, I started work for the British Antarctic Survey in in 1990. I'm a geographer. Um, I uh, I had an A-level in geography, and then I studied uh, geography uh, for my degree at the University of Southampton. And I stayed at Southampton to do my PhD which was on the environmental impact of oil pollution. 
And I was just coming to the end of the PhD, wondering what I'd do next. And I wanted to stay in environmental management, environmental monitoring, environmental impact assessment, because that had been the topic that I'd studied. And I just saw a job advert for the British Antarctic Survey uh, for their first ever environmental officer. And that advert was in a magazine called New Scientist. And I deliberated for a long time about whether I'd apply or no. And in the end, I did. And I got the job. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I stayed at Bass for 25 years, going to both Antarctica and the Arctic, uh, traveling all around the polar regions, which was incredible to be able to do and to uh, advise the scientists uh, and to work to minimize any environmental impact uh, on the continent continent by British Antarctic Survey. And then whilst I was at Bass, uh, pretty soon I got asked to be the environmental uh, advisor to the Polar Regions Department at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And that led me to going uh, and working at a very high level, providing environmental advice at the Antarctic Treaty, International Antarctic Treaty meetings. And even towards the end of my career, I was asked to be what's called an Antarctic Treaty Inspector. Under the Antarctic Treaty, you can go and manage it, uh, inspect the facilities of any other station uh, and facility in Antarctica. And I did that three times in 2005, 2012, and 2015. So it was quite a quite an amazing career. Then I left Bass and uh, moved over to the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge. And I worked very closely um, with them and their Polar Museum for a couple of years. And then in 2017, I decided that I'd... Uh, start up my own polar consultancy business and then within a couple of months of starting the business I got uh, I got a call and uh, asked whether I could uh, assist with the Weddell Sea Expedition so I've never never really looked back seeing that job advert in New Scientist back in 1990. That's a great story. Um, you mentioned both the Arctic and Antarctica there. Um, could I ask you to explain why there's such scientific interest specifically in Antarctica? Well, Antarctica is very important for science because of its profound effect on the Earth's climate and ocean systems. Um, for example, the ice sheets in Antarctica are absolutely huge, enormous uh, geographical features, and they contain about 90% of all the world's ice, uh, and they store 70% of the world's fresh water. Now, what's particularly worrying to scientists and yeah, more generally for us, you know, wherever we are in the world, including here in the UK, is that those ice sheets and glaciers are beginning to melt and causing global sea levels to rise. So there's a particular focus in Antarctica at the moment to studying glaciers and ice sheets uh, to discover how fast they're melting uh, and the impacts that that's causing on uh, global climate systems and ocean currents. And a particular focus is predicting the contribution of those melting ice sheets and glaciers on future sea level rise. You know, we know that particularly in the northern parts of the Antarctic, around the Antarctic Peninsula, temperatures have increased by about three degrees over the last uh, 50 years. Um, so as a consequence of that, we're seeing uh, melting glaciers. Uh, and when those glaciers melt, that's providing fresh water into the sea and rising sea levels. And you only have to have sea levels rising by half a metre a metre to have huge consequences for mankind. Billions of people live uh, within a few miles of the coast. Um, so we need to know what's going on in Antarctica so that we can predict what's happening to future sea level rise. 
Going back to the Weddell Sea expedition of 2019, can I ask what the objectives were for that specific trip, that scientific voyage? Well, the principal objective was was scientific. I've already mentioned about the importance of climate change in Antarctica, and that was a primary focus of the expedition, where where we wanted to go to a particular place. It was, it's called the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf, um, very, very rarely visited, and that's because of very, very heavy sea ice which surrounds the ice shelf. Um, it's proved very difficult to get there and to monitor and to study. Um, so that was a, a key objective. And then uh, in that area, there's a very famous shipwreck. Uh, it's the wreck of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, uh, which sank in the Weddell Sea in uh, November 1915. And uh, although people know where the wreck is, no one had ever actually found it on the sea floor. And we had the technology with us um, where we felt that we were uh, had the capability to go and to go and find it. So that was the second objective. And then, really, on the expedition, uh, we discovered that another key aim that we wanted to achieve was uh, education and outreach. We hadn't really thought of of whether it would be possible, but we decided that we would look at uh, doing uh, live internet classrooms from the ship. And by stopping everybody else using email and um, taking up any bandwidth, we were actually able to do live classrooms from the ship, which is, I think, really very rare. I don't think many people have ever been able to achieve that in Antarctica. And uh, that was great. And we communicated with hundreds of schools uh, in the UK, the USA, Canada. um, And that was a great thing to be involved with as well. That must be really great to to have that outreach and to have it globally direct into classrooms. The expedition was an amazing feat of organisation by the sounds of it. You had an, an icebreaker from South Africa, an international research team, experts from the Scott Polar Research Institute, and also, I understand, uh, robotics from a US tech company called Ocean Infinity. How did you start off with your with your planning, where did this all begin? Well, well, it all began with a with a phone call. An old colleague of mine phoned me up and said, uh, because of my experience with Bass and with Scott Polar Research Institute, uh, they had some people that he wanted me to meet from a charity called the Flotilla Foundation, and this charity was thinking of organising an expedition. Uh, into the Weddell Sea, and they wanted to take my advice on whether this was feasible at all because of how difficult it was to get there because of the very thick sea ice that's found there and the very difficult and harsh weather conditions. And particularly, they wanted to know whether there was any ship that which, which might be able to do this job. I told them that I thought it was going to be difficult, but that we, if we found the right ship, then it would be it, it could be feasible. Um, I must have made a bit of an impression because within half an hour they'd asked me to be the expedition operations and logistics manager, and I spent the next eighteen months uh, working on the expedition pretty much full time. And my first task, once they'd asked me to. Uh, to come in to be the the, the the operations manager was to find that right ship. And that was a, a really interesting journey, which took me to uh, Russia, G- uh, Germany, South Africa, uh, a worldwide search to try and find the right research icebreaker for the job. And 
uh, we were very lucky and fortunate to be able to get the services of the South African uh, Antarctic Research Programme research icebreaker, which is called the S.A. Agulhas II. And uh, we chartered her for the expedition. And that was, you know, once we got the ship, then pretty much uh, a lot of the uh, other elements of the expedition then began to fall into place. Um, and because I've been so involved with the expedition by that stage, uh, the Flotilla Foundation then asked me to be the expedition leader. And I ran all of the science, the marine survey, and the logistics operations on board the ship uh, during the expedition. We started the expedition on the 3rd of January 2019. Um, we actually got to the last ice shelf on the 10th of January, one of only a handful of ships which has uh, ever been able to, to do that. We actually got to the Endurance wreck site on the 10th of February, and we finished the ex expedition on the, the 20th of February. So it was an amazing trip, loads of mishaps, but everyone came back safely, and it was an incredible uh, voyage to be part of. It never would have occurred to me that the ship would have been so important, but it, it seems obvious now you've said it. Can I ask, what were the problems logistically, A, with the route, and B, with the scientific work that you undertook? So to start off with the route, the primary challenges were, of course, the, the weather. Uh, we hit several storms uh, whilst we were at sea, yeah, battling through 20-foot, 30-foot waves, uh, even on an, a big icebreaker, uh, can be extremely difficult. Uh, the ship rolling from side to side. Icebreakers have uh, flattened hulls on them to get, get them through the ice, so they're not particularly good at sea, so we had to ensure that everything was secure on the ship so we didn't break anything. And then once we got into the ice, especially around the last sea ice shelf and at the endurance sinking location, it was extremely thick. It's in those sorts of areas, two to three meters thick, can be up to five, maybe even 10 meters thick. And the ship although it's a, a, a big icebreaker, uh, even uh, in, in those conditions, found it too tough and got stuck on several occasions. But there, they, you know, the South Africans had their own way of dealing with it. And uh, one of the best ways of freeing us once we got stuck was they'd get the, uh, the, the ship's crane into operation and they'd attach a, a big fuel container to the end of the, uh, the chip of the crane. And then they put it over the side of the vessel and swing it from side to side and that would rock the vessel sufficiently that it would break the ice and enable us to get out and to keep moving. So uh, it was unusual. I'd never seen that before, but it, it was certainly very effective. But, but even using those sorts of uh, ad hoc um, methods didn't work towards the end um, because we had the winter, the Antarctic winter was approaching us. Temperatures changed very quickly in the Weddell Sea um, towards the end of February, beginning of March, and we had surface temperatures dropping around us to about minus 20 degrees centigrade. So of course, that makes any work outside very difficult. You're at extreme risk of uh, frost nip or frostbite. But also, more importantly for the ship, we had this, the sea starting to freeze all around us, which is an amazing sight to see. We actually see before your eyes, you see the ice um, forming what's called grease ice, a pale uh, sort of grease on top of the surface of the ice, and then that very quickly forms. And if you have that forming around this ship, quickly you can get very easily get stuck so then we knew that really we had to uh, get out of there and get back to uh, uh, warmer uh, less ice infested waters so the scientific work had problems 
principally with the underwater vehicle technology uh, we were using. The vehicles were state-of-the-art. In fact, one of the uh, vehicles, an, an autonomous underwater vehicle, was absolutely brand new. It had been designed specifically by Kongsberg Marine in Norway for the expedition and had never been used uh, in Antarctica before. So we really didn't know how some of this technology was going to cope with the harsh conditions. One of the AUVs had a navigation problem. Um, it surfaced, had to do an emergency ascent, and uh, we lost it under a big ice flow. Um, that took us nearly four days to locate, and then we had to break it out from the ice using the ship and then retrieve it using our remotely operated vehicle. So that was pretty interesting. And then... Later on the expedition, we actually lost an AV absolutely completely, um, and it was never found. And then finally, with the remotely operated vehicle, we were testing it at, uh, at, in deep water at about 3,000 meters depth, and the pressure housing with all its electronics imploded at depth. It's on a tether, so we could bring it back to the ship, but we couldn't repair it. So we lost the, the ROV for about half of the uh, uh, expedition, the latter half of the expedition. So the technology certainly had its had its challenges, but it was worth using that tel- technology for some of the amazing scientific data that these vehicles were able to record. Can you tell us what A68 is and why did it attract so much international attention? Uh, A-68 is the name of one of the largest icebergs ever recorded, and uh, it broke away from the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf in July 2017, and it's a huge, huge thing. It's about uh, 5,800 square kilometres, so, and that's about four times the size of London, and it's about 200 metres thick. The formation of A68 is 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 important, and scientists, um, particularly the scientists on the Weddell Sea expedition, wanted to go and look at it, and and we were lucky enough uh, on the Agulhas two to get through the sea ice and actually be the first to actually see A68 physically uh, at the Larsen ice shelf. Um, it's it's in it's important because glaciers are part of the the natural process of uh, ice shelf collapse and retreat but normally with these ice shelves any ice that's lost through the production of icebergs is uh, is regained by uh, inland glaciers flowing in on top of the uh, and adding mass to the ice shelf so it's a, a balancing act but normally there's sort of an equilibrium in the ice shelf but what we're seeing to the north of the, the Larsen Sea has been the collapse of ice shelves um, because of the warming climate. And the production of these very big icebergs could be the precursor for uh, the Larsen Sea uh, actually breaking up. Um, now, we don't know that, but given that the ice shelves to the north, the Larsen A and the Larsen B have both collapsed in the last 20 years, then it might be an early warning signal that something is also happening at Larsen C. And that was a particular reason why the scientists, particularly from the Scott Polar Research Institute, were so keen uh, to get there. A68 itself has now slowly been taken by winds and currents from Antarctica. It's no longer uh, anywhere near the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf. In fact, it's out in open water in the Southern Ocean. Um, But it still hasn't really broken up. But as it travels further north in the warmer tropical waters, it will start start to melt. Uh, But the danger then becomes, as it melts, it collapses, and you get uh, lots of smaller icebergs forming, uh, also 
small pieces of ice the size of a car or a house called bogey bits, and they can be a real danger to, to shipping. So the impact of A68 is likely to be with us for several more years to come. And that, I imagine, is a cause of, for example, the record temperatures we've seen on the Antarctic Peninsula this year. Did you see or read about it being 18 degrees at one point this year? Yes, yes, yes. So this is, um, um, I think it was at an Argentine station, um, a place called Seymour Island, uh, which is at the northern, uh, northwest edge of the Weddell Sea. Yeah, and they had uh, record temperatures recorded there, you know, which... You know, it just adds to this temperature rise that you're seeing, particularly in the uh, uh, Antarctic Peninsula region, probably one of the fastest warming parts of the planet. And that's why so much ice is melting in that particular region at the moment. The Scott Polar Research Institute uh, that you mentioned a moment ago um, have just published some of their important findings from the expedition in the journal Science. Uh, what did they discover? So the, the scientists from Scott Polar Research Institute were led by Professor Julian Dazzle. He's the director of SPRY. And um, they deployed one of the expedition's uh, autonomous underwater vehicles, uh, which had a very high-resolution mapping capability to survey the seafloor uh, off the Larsen Ice Shelf. Um, now, this particular AUV was um, equipped with what's called a multi-beam sonar, and that's a type of complex echo sounder. So it sends out pulses of sound waves to the seafloor and measures the amount of time it takes for that pulse to return. And this data is then used to calculate the water depth. And if you know the water depth, you can then know the, the, the height of the seafloor and to be able to map it. Now, with this brand new AUV, they were able to um, go very, very near to the seafloor, to fly it about 60 metres off the seabed, and they were able to actually to record incredible, stunning, high-resolution imagery. This is sub-metre scale imagery, so this has never been done before in Antarctica. Uh, and they discovered uh, a delicate pattern of uh, ancient ridges on the seafloor. And these ridges are incredibly old. They date back to the to the last ice age and the, the last major collapse um, as we're coming out to the last ice, ice age and temperatures warmed and the uh, uh, last ice shelf uh, uh, broke up and melted away. And that's about 12,000 years ago. And what they discovered on the imagery were that these ridges um, looked like ladders um, where each rung was about 1.5 metres high, and they were spaced between 20 to 25 metres apart. And uh, scientists interpreted this as being where the grounding line of the uh, of the ice shelf had been. Uh, so the grounding line is where the uh, ice shelf starts to detach from the land uh, because ice is buoyant and it starts to lift. Uh, and so the grounding line is at that point between where the, the, the ice starts to lift off the land. Now, of course, you have tides, then the ice will go up and down with the tides. Even though it's such a massive feature, it still gets affected by tides, so it'll go up and down twice per day with the tides. What they could detect from these features was that the ice was in retreat, because otherwise these features would have been obliterated by the ice going above it, so the ice was retreating, and with tides twice a day, these uh, rungs being 20 to 25 metres apart, they calculated that you, know, you were seeing a retreat of the, uh, uh, of the ice there at about 40 to 50 metres per day, which is incredibly, incredibly fast. It was an um, amazing bit of research uh, to discover that. Um, because 
that rate of retreat is about 10 times faster than what's observed by remote sensing satellites or physical measurements of these uh, ice shelves and glaciers today. So if you get that sort of climate uh, change uh, and that rate of retreat happening in the future, and you could see and seeing similar rates retreat, then that would have really profound implications on global sea level rise. Um, the, the changes that we're seeing in Antarctica would be happening so much faster uh, into the future. So therefore, sea level rise could be happening much, much faster. So it was a really interesting interesting result and was only possible because of these state-of-the-art AEVs that we'd taken with us on the expedition. 40 to 50 metres in terms of rate of ice retreat does sound alarmingly fast. Why is the disintegration of the Larsen ice shelf so important and what will happen to Larsen Sea? Well, Larsen Sea is one of the biggest ice shelves in Antarctica. It's the fourth largest one and it's got an area of about 44 thousand square kilometers so these are big big features um and concerns about what's happening there have been fueled by the collapse of um of the ice shelves to the further to north the larsen a and the larsen b and the collapse of larsen b was incredible because of this warming in the antarctic peninsula it it collapsed in 2002 in in a matter of weeks in just over a month and that ice shelf we know from sedimentary records, uh, work done by people like the Scott Polar Research Institute, we knew that that ice shelf had been stable for the last 10,000 years. For it to, so for it to collapse in uh, a matter of a month shows you that you know, something is happening in Antarctica. Now, the next most northerly ice shelf is the Larsen Sea. So not surprisingly, scientists are concerned that it might be the next ice shelf to go. So clearly, you know, we need to know uh, what what's happening, both in the past and now in the present, to de- to determine what's going to happen to to Larsen C. If Larsen C ice shelf were to go, then um, and all the ice behind it was to melt, then we could see a global sea level rise of around ten centimeters. So in itself, not a huge amount, but this is happening all. It could be happening all the way around Antarctica. And certainly, uh, if Larsen Sea ice shelf were to go, then that would be an early indicator of major changes that could be expected elsewhere. So it's very important, if you like, as an early warning mechanism to find out what's happening at uh, Larsen Sea and uh, to determine if it will collapse and when that might be. And that's why it's such a focus for scientific research at the moment. The Western Weddell Sea is one of the areas uh, for the formation of Antarctic bottom water. Can we shift um, our focus from ice to water? And could you explain what bottom water is and why did you study it on your expedition? Yeah, so Antarctic bottom water is the uh, the coldest and uh, densest and deepest water in the world's oceans. Uh, it forms, but it forms in very few places in Antarctica. Um, principally adjacent to and underneath the uh, floating ice shelves. And a key area for the production of Antarctic bottom water is actually off the Larsen ice shelf. So what happens there is that uh, the prevailing winds are blowing northwards um, from Antarctica, uh, off the Antarctic continent, uh, and then they go over the sea. They push sea ice away from the coast and create gaps in the open water just off the ice shelf. Um, These winds are really, really cold. They can be very strong. You can get winds 
80, 100 miles an hour. Um, and they super cool the ocean. And cold water sinks. Um, also, adjacent to these big areas of open water, you've got huge expanses of uh, sea ice. And when sea ice forms, sea ice is the freezing of the seawater because of these very cold conditions. When sea ice forms, it extrudes salt. So the surface water is also incredibly salty. And salt in, in water also makes it dense. So you have this super cold, super salty water uh, just off the ice shelves. And that sinks incredibly rapidly. So you uh, oceanographers tell me that it's, it's a bit like a, a waterfall underwater. So you're getting this cascading of very dense and very cold water heading straight down to the sea floor. And that very cold water then spreads very slowly along the seafloor and it helps to power what's called the uh, global ocean conveyor belt. Um, so these are the systems of the world's ocean currents and a major pump or driver of those currents are, uh, around the world's oceans is this very cold, dense uh, Antarctic bottom water. So what happens to Antarctic bottom water is very important because it's, if you like, the power source for these global conveyor belts of ocean currents, which take heat around the planet. So, uh, so what happens there is very important to everyone else, um, including ourselves in the UK. Um, one of the major reasons we ha we have a very benign climate in the UK is because of what's called the Gulf Stream, which is part of this ocean conveyor belt. So what happens in Antarctica to the Antarctic bottom water? could directly affect us, particularly if, if the Gulf Stream were to reduce in size or maybe even, even stop. So studying Antarctic bottom water is an extremely important thing to do, but is extremely difficult to do because to try and collect data, uh, you need to get a ship in there. Uh, and they use what's called a CTD, which measures uh, conductivity, temperature and depth. And we had uh, one of these CTD arrays on board the Agulhas 2. So we were able to take measurements of Antarctic bottom water in locations of Antarctica uh, in the Weddell Sea where people had never been uh, able to measure bottom water before. So it provides a very important scientific baseline to determine what's happening to the bottom water. That is fascinating. Um, a major objective of the expedition was to locate and survey the wreck of Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, which sank down to the depths of the Weddell Sea in 1915. Did you manage to find it? No, uh, unfortunately, yeah, we didn't. We didn't find the wreck. It's probably the world's most difficult shipwreck to access. Not because people don't know where it is. The location is very well known. Uh, Shackleton had a, a fantastic captain, um, but probably the, the, the best navigator uh, of the age, a chap called Captain Frank Worsley. And Worsley kept meticulous records. Uh, even when the ship sank and they were stranded on the ice, uh, he would take uh, sextant and uh, sun sight readings every day to determine their location. So we know more, more or less exactly where the ship sank. Uh, he kept a diary, and that diary is now in the archives at the Scott Polar Research Institute. And I was very lucky to, to go and uh, do research at Spry and actually physically look at the diary and uh, find out where the uh, exact sinking location is. So it's not that we don't know where the wreck is, it's getting to it because of the very thick sea ice and uh, harsh conditions that you face in that part of the western Weddell Sea of uh, Antarctica. Uh, the ship sank 
back in 1915 because Shackleton was attempting to be the first person to cross the Antarctic continent. Uh, he wanted to get into the Weddell Sea to a place called Vassal Bay, uh, get a shore team, and then walk from Vassal Bay in the Weddell Sea to the Pole, and then to Ross Island, um, where he had a, a, another party waiting for him. But he never never even got ashore. The ship got stuck in the ice. They're only a, they're 10, 15 miles from their final destination, but they were never able to get ashore. And then they got uh, swept up in the ice and the currents, and uh, uh, the, the ship finally sank in November 1915. So it's a very iconic wreck, but nobody had had, uh, had attempted to try and search for it. But with the technology that we had on board the vessel, we thought that well, perhaps we you know we would have a have a chance if we could get there through the ice. Um, which we managed to do. The, the, the Gullis 2 was an incredible ship to be on. Um, they got us to the, the wreck site. Uh, I think we're perhaps only one of two other vessels, three other vessels, which have ever managed to, to, to get to this particular location. It is so remote and difficult to get to. Um, once we got to the wreck site, we put down one of the AVs. Um, the wreck is in quite deep water. It's about 3,000 metres. But the AUVs are capable of working down to 6,000 metres. Um, so it was well within their, their range. It was working perfectly. It almost completed its mission. And then we just lost complete contact with it. No idea what had happened to it. Um, it just stopped transmitting its location. And unfortunately, all the uh, um, multi-beam sonar data that it had was contained on the, uh, the vehicle's onboard computer. Um, so we have no idea whether or not it might have even t- detected the wreck. So we were so close, um, but so far. We then undertook a major search operation to try and find the AUV swapped from searching for the wreck to searching for the AUV. Um, but that's when the weather turned against us. We had these uh, incredibly cold temperatures of minus 20 degrees centigrade, temperatures dropping so, so fast, very rapid of formation of sea ice. And as the expedition leader, I had to take the very difficult decision of uh, deciding that the safety of the vessel and us not getting trapped and um, putting us all at risk was a bigger risk than actually continue to search for the uh, search for the AV. So we had to abandon the, the search and, and um, get very quickly out of there and out to safety. It sounds very dangerous. Your ship had to break through a lot of thick sea ice to get to the shipwreck of Shackleton and the Endurance. Um, what was that like? And were you able to get off the ship? You've talked a lot about temperatures dropping quickly and going down to minus 20 degrees centigrade. Yeah. So, um, well, we knew that the, the sea ice was going to be a major factor that we had to uh, cope with during the expedition. Um, so, we used a whole range of techniques and methods to help us navigate. We had satellite remote sensing. We used um, radar satellite images. Uh, radar can penetrate cloud. Um, so really useful in the Antarctic. Very, radar is very good for, for looking at sea ice. So we were able to use daily sea ice images uh, and actually get those onto the bridge of the Agulhas 2 to help us navigate. We, we used drones 
um, which would fly out every day to help us look for leads or channels in the ice, which would be make it easier for the ship to make access. And then uh, probably the you know the best decision that we did was to bring a specialized ice pilot with us. So an ice pilot is someone who knows a huge amount about sea ice. Um, and in our case, we took with us uh, a former captain of Agulhas II. He'd been into the Weddell Sea many, many times before. So he knew what the ice conditions were likely to be like. And it was he the, who took over when we were in those very thick patches of ice, uh, particularly over the uh, endurance uh, relocation. So although it was very difficult because we had uh, all these different methods and techniques and people, um, we were able to, to work pretty safely. And you know, being on a ship in ice is 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 an amazing spectacle. The ship's working at full power, so you can hear the engines in the background working at full speed. It's grinding its way through the ice, so there's a lot of noise as you break the ice in front of the vessel. And when you're watching the ice, seeing it crack, it's mesmerizing. You can stand on the bridge for you know, hours just watching you know, this incredible landscape uh, unfold in front of you. But as I said, sometimes we got stuck. Uh, and even with all the different methods and techniques, including using the, um, the, the ship's crane with the fuel container, uh, we just had to we would just have to wait it out, uh, wait for the winds to change or the tide to change, currents to change, and then the uh, pressure of the ice would ease and we'd be able to make way again. But in those occasions where we were utterly stuck and we couldn't move, you know, we went down to uh, idle power on the ship, become much quieter, and then... Uh, much to my amazement, none of us knew that this was going to happen. We would see hundreds and hundreds of crab-eater seals suddenly appear around the ship, play around in the open water beside the ship, haul out onto the ice. Uh, it was amazing to see. Uh, and then those seals would often be followed in by uh, emperor penguins and by minke whales, and they would uh, swim around the ship below next to the ship it was absolutely beautiful it's uh, one of my most amazing memories of the expedition um, and i was lucky to be able to get off the ship very few people uh, actually get the opportunity to work on sea ice uh, particularly uh, in, in antarctica it's not that frequently done um, because of the the dangers of being in these locations. So I would go out first, act as if you like the guide with a couple of the crew, test the thickness of the ice um, and check that it was safe to walk on and for the scientists to do their research, to take uh, ice samples and to take various measurements. Um, people often think the ice is completely flat. Um, it isn't like that at all. It's got hummocks and hollows. It's got ridges where the ice flows collide. So you've got to be careful that you don't fall into any of these hummocks and hollows. Um, a perspective can be difficult, particularly if you've got very sort of flat light conditions. And there's often snow lying on top. Um, so you know, you've got to be careful that you don't fall through a hole and um, break an ankle or a leg. So that would be part of my job and then you know, if I'd been sort of stationary for a while often I'd be uh, joined by some inquisitive seals coming to see what on earth this strange red creature was walking about on the ice um, or emperor penguins who wanted to come and look at what me and the scientists were doing so uh, yeah it was quite quite magical to be out on the ice again another uh, experience that I'll never forget. 
What expedition advice would you offer to young geographers and scientists listening to this podcast? I think uh, my advice would be, if you're starting out, start small. Uh, have a belief that you can do it. And don't be afraid to go for your dreams. I started my expedition career at school. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, that my teachers there uh, did the uh, did the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. So I went on short camping trips to, to Wales, as I remember, as part of my gold expedition. And that was really the start for me. Uh, I loved being in the outdoors. And now, 30 years later, I organize my own major international expeditions to Antarctica. So it's been, been quite a journey. But if I hadn't been introduced to those expeditions at a, a young age, then yeah, my career might have taken a completely different direction. And in terms of going for your dreams, you know, I'd always had in the back of my mind about going to Antarctica, particularly um, when I was at university and I'd read about a, a geographer called Griffith Taylor, who'd been with Captain Scott. And in fact, uh, Griffith Taylor was one of the people who discovered a major feature in Antarctica called the, the Dry Valleys. Um, so he was a bit of a hero of mine. And then when I saw the job advert with British Antarctic Survey, I thought, wow, yeah, um, wouldn't it be great to go to Antarctica? But I didn't think that I would have a, a chance at all. And indeed, I always remember that um, I actually threw the original application form away. And uh, luckily, the, the cleaner at, at work at the university had flu and um, didn't come in that day and clear my waste paper bin. So I got the application form out of the bin and filled it in. And uh, amazingly, I got the job and uh, you know, and was there for 25 years. So I, my advice is always give things a go. You never know. And um, go for it when you get the opportunity. And finally, John, can I ask, what future plans and expeditions do you have? So most of my expeditions at the moment are on hold. Um, I almost got stuck in Antarctica when COVID-19 broke out and uh, only uh, managed to get out very fortunately by uh, sailing with the expedition ship to uh, Uruguay and flying out from Montevideo back to the UK just as the lockdown was starting. So the COVID-19 pandemic has really put a, uh, a stop on my expeditions for the moment. And Antarctica is the only continent at the moment which is completely free of the virus. So, of course, all the national Antarctic programs and tour operators who go to Antarctica want to keep it that way. So, most expeditions have been postponed, um, certainly for uh, for this year and for next year. But I've still got some unfinished business in the Weddell Sea, so I hope to get back there perhaps in 2022, have another search for endurance and, of course, look for a very valuable AUV whilst I'm there. Thank you, John. It's been great to hear such a detailed first-hand account of Antarctica and good luck for all your scientific expeditions in the future. Thank you very much, Harry. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.